And Holy Spirit, as we have sung this morning, our heart cry is, Lord, have your way. Not our way, not our will, but your will be done. Lord, we pray for this to be the expression of our life. That, Lord, we would no, be, no longer be able to call our life our own. But like Paul said, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. That's the most wonderful transformation. It's the most wonderful expression of what true life really is. For Christ to live and for us to no longer live. Lord, we pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit. That our life for the rest of our lives would be an expression, a visible, tangible expression of Jesus Christ within our world, within the spheres of our world that we walk in daily. Lord, we ask this for your glory and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have been sent to this earth and you remain here in order for that to be achieved because we cannot achieve it without you, Holy Spirit. We cannot achieve it, Holy Spirit through our own means or through our own efforts or through our own work but through your presence and through your power Holy Spirit and only through your help can we be Jesus to a lost and a dying world and we ask this now in Jesus name and Lord we pray this morning that you would illuminate our hearts with your word your your word says about your word that at the entrance of your word there is light. There is light. And wherever there's light, there's growth. Wherever there's light in darkness, there's a new beginning. And Lord, I pray for any area in our lives today that may be hidden and obscured and under darkness. We pray that the wonderful light, the penetrating light of your word would visit that dark place and bring a new beginning, bring new life, bring new growth. Do what the power of your light and your life does in those areas of our life, we ask it. In the name of Jesus, for your glory and all God's people said, Amen. Come on, why don't we give Jesus another shout of thanks and praise this morning. And you can be seated. Amen. Well, God is so good. God is so good. All the time, every single day. We need to wake up to that and remind ourselves of that in the midst of all of the changes that life brings. In the midst of all of the circumstances maybe that we face. Let's never forget. Let's never forget that every day is a new expression of God's grace of God's love, we wake up into a brand new day that's been created for us. In fact, every day is the day that the Lord is made. And we have a right and an obligation to rejoice and be glad in every day. Don't let, I tell you, don't let the devil hinder you. Don't let the devil oppose you. Don't let the devil take away your right to rejoice in every single day that, that you wake up in because it's an expression of God's goodness towards you. The fact that he's allowing every single one of us into this new day today is a wonderful expression of his love and his provision for us. Well, a few weeks ago, we started talking about this whole area of how God desires to transform our lives. Do you remember that? We looked and started at Romans chapter 12 and we, we picked up on some words that Paul spoke to the church. He was desiring them not to be conformed and fashioned and molded to the world that was around and about them. But he said, listen, don't be conformed or, or bound by the power of this world. Don't let it fashion you. Don't let it shape you. Don't let it mold you. But be transformed. By the renewing of your mind. We looked at that scripture briefly and then we began to look at Jacob's life and we began to see how God changed his life greatly, how God transformed him, how God overcame all of the things that were controlling Jacob 
and enabled him to walk in a new life with God's favor and blessing on it. I'm telling you, God has only got good things for you and I. And sometimes we struggle with those things. Sometimes we wrestle against those things. Sometimes we refuse to actually receive the great blessing that God has for each one of us. Why? Because it involves change. It involves transformation. And lots of times we hold on to an old inferior life that's impoverished, that, that can't offer us really anything in the future. But because it's all we've known and because it's all we've got very often, we hold on to it and we get into this tug-of-war scenario with God and we wrestle with him. And Jacob was in that kind of position when we read about him in Genesis chapter 32. But I'm telling you now, God has only got good things for us. And if you, you know, if you win a wrestling match against God, you lose, really. But if you lose in that wrestling, in that struggle, and in that tussle with God, you win. You win. And on this night in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob lost. Thank God. Thank God he lost. And he became the recipient of great blessing, of great inner change, of, of great provision for his life. It was bestowed on him as a result of submitting and surrendering to God's way. Now, God's way is very different to our way. In fact, we've mentioned it many times before where we've picked up on verses from the Bible where God discloses this about himself. He says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So much higher are my ways and my thoughts than yours. As the heavens are from the earth, so are my ways from your ways and my thoughts from your thoughts. God isn't being condescending when he says that. God isn't being proud or arrogant or making us feel small. He's just expressing the truth and saying, listen... We are so far apart when it comes to my way of doing things in relation to your way of doing things. But if you stick with me, I'm going to bring you in. If you stick with me, I'm going to change you and transform you so there's not going to be a huge difference between us. Peter, when encouraging the church, he says, We've been given exceedingly great and precious promises so that we might become partakers of the divine nature. Don't be surprised in the future when the word of God begins to explode inside you that you begin to do things differently to what you've formerly done. What is that? That's an explosion of a new nature inside you altering the way you think, altering the, the actions and even the words that you speak. Don't be surprised when you're transformed and changed and your life becomes an instrument of God. What is that? That's the Word of God becoming practical and tangible and right down into the nitty-gritty expression of your life. Don't be surprised. You're a partaker of the divine nature through these exceedingly great... God doesn't speak anything small over any one of our lives. God doesn't have this little small expectation regarding your life. The plan that he has for you, the expectation that, that, that he holds for your future is huge. Huge. Far, far beyond what you can ask or think or imagine. And very often, listen, we're, I'm, I'm, t I'm, t I'm telling you, right, really, I'm not... I'm not necessarily just talking to you this morning when I when I say what I'm saying I'm talking to myself so you're hearing a you're hearing a conversation that I have with myself before you get it sometimes we think so small sometimes we have so a lot such a low estimation of where our life can go 
and what God wants to do with it. No, God gives you exceedingly great and precious promises. That's the only term that Peter can find in his vocabulary to describe the wonders of God's word over our life. They've been given to us and those, those uh, wonderful promises are not just so that we can quote them parrot fashion. Those wonderful promises are there to explode in our lives, producing a divine nature whereby ex by experience, we know it in a tangible sense. This is what transformation is really about. You begin to see the, the, the outgrowth of it. You begin to see the tangible fruit of it. You begin to see it seeping into all areas of life, your home life, your work life. You, 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 you begin to understand that you're in him. You move in him. Your very being is in him. And this is how it should be. This is the Christian life. It really is. Why would we want to go back to an inferior life? Why would we want to allow the, the world around us to shape us? When we found something so superior. And that isn't, you know, that isn't being condescending and saying, hey, look what we got, you haven't got it. You understand that. It's nothing to do with that. But I tell you something now, when the grace and the power and the life of Jesus Christ is in you, there's a difference. There's a difference in your life. There really is. Paul knew this. Now I want to pick up as we begin this morning and we may get to Jacob. I tell you now I've got more stuff than I've got time to say it. More, more, I tell you man, I've got so much stuff. I don't know if we've got time to, to hear it all. But we're going to start off in Colossians. Maybe we'll get to Jacob a little way down. But Colossians chapter 3 verse 15. Paul is giving advice again to, to believers. And again, he's not, he's not rabbiting on. This man had proved what he was speaking in many different circumstances. The very testimonies of his life, the very writings about the situations and circumstances that he faced was testament to what he was speaking about to the church at Colossae. Chapter 3, verse 15, he says this, And let... The peace of God rule, other translation says control in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. The Amplified Version, translating the same verse, says this, Let the peace of Christ, the inner calm of one who walks daily within, with him, be the controlling factor in your hearts. Deciding and settling questions that arise. To this peace indeed you were called as members of one body of believers. And be thankful to God always. Paul says let the peace of God rule. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let it control, let it have control in your heart. You want transformation? Do you want immediate transformation? Are you happy with where you're at internally within your life? Are you agitated? Are you at war within yourself? Is there an inner conflict? Are there more troubles and questions within than there are answers? Do you need transformation this morning? I'm telling you, let's start right here. Let the peace of God rule. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Now I'm going to explain to you exactly what that means very practically in a moment. But I'm telling you now, you do not have to walk around in this world with worries, cares, fears, depressions, sadnesses, what oppressions. And I know about them all because I've had them as a Christian. But I'm telling you now, the word of God, we've got to take hold of it and apply it. Do you need transformation? Well, let me start the ball rolling. I do. And I'll take every, every ounce of it. Because God wants our lives 
to thrive and to soar. You look at Isaiah and he saw that wonderful picture of transformation. He said, you're going to run. He said, youths fail all the time. They grow weary and weak. But this is not for you, he says, because your life is in God. You're going to run and not grow weary. You're going to walk and not grow faint. You're going to rise up with wings as of eagles. And your youth is going to be renewed. He wasn't talking to a bunch of youngsters. He was talking to middle age and older age that had given up on life. And he says, listen, the Spirit of God is going to come in your body. And you're no longer going to recognize yourself. And you're going to be able to do things with your life that you've never done before. Because that's what God does whenever he comes into a situation. He transforms it. He changes it. And I'm telling you now, you're the prize and the apple of his eye. He loves everything about us. And those things, those things that you know hinder you and hold you back, God knows about them too. And his heart aches like your heart aches. And he's got, I'm telling you now, they're, they're on his agenda. Jesus put it like this one day. He said, everything that is planted in the garden that's not come as a result of my father's hand will be ripped up by the roots. There's maybe some things growing in our hearts that we've tried to pull up. You know what it's like when you try to pull a tree up? You can use all your strength. You can exert all your might. And that thing is rooted and bedded and founded into that soil. And some of us have got our arms around the oak tree, man. And we've been there years. Ah, struggling, wrestling, trying to get that thing out. You're never, gonna you're never going to get that oak tree out, friends. You haven't got enough strength. I haven't got enough strength. We might as well call it for what it is. You can chop the thing down with the axe. The trouble is the roots are still in the ground. But when the power of God's spirit comes into your life and my life, that thing, it doesn't matter the diameter. It doesn't matter how long it's been in the ground. It's coming up by the roots. And when God says that's coming out of the soil of your heart, out it's coming. Out it's coming. Because it's taking up needed space. Needed space, space for his life, space for his blessing, space for his goodness, space for his provision. Coming up. Oh, man. So Paul says, right? He says, let the peace of Christ rule. Rule. What does, what does this word mean? It's a wonderful. It's a wonderful word. And you know, the, the language, the origi original language, you can take one word from, from, your, from the Greek language and there can be so many wonderful applications to it. Paul says, let the peace of God rule. That word rule means let it be the umpire. Let it be the umpire. Let it be the discerner. Let it be the judge. Let it express itself in having the final say in your decisions, in your direction, in what you're going to do with your life. Let the peace of God be the loudest voice. There's another, there's another interpretation to this world, uh, this word. And I'm not sure if our football fans in the building, I know we've got a lot of those, I tell you what, those godless football fans in here, it's a devilish game. And they're going to go home today and watch it on the TV and all. You little tinkers. The other word for this word rule is the word referee. Now, oh, oh, dare I mention that word in church? Referee. The most hated man on the pitch is the referee. You go to a football match, I haven't been to many, I've watched a few. I mean, the arguments that come as a result of the referee's decision, the players on the field, they're spitting bullets at him. The, the whole stadium, hang the referee, whatever else. I mean, it's unbelievable. The most hated man on the pitch is the referee. Why? Because the referee brings a judgment. The referee tells us what's right and wrong. The referee identifies foul play when they get it right. 
Paul is saying the peace of God can be your referee. The peace of God can instruct you, guide you, tell you what's right, indicate what's wrong, show you what to do and what not to do. Our trouble is this. When we want to do something, usually we surround ourselves with people that will affirm the decision that we want to make. It's called human nature. We do it all the time. And then peace stands up in our hearts, wanting to take control for your good in your heart. And it says, Dave, don't do that. Dave, that's going to be a wrong decision. Peace is giving me a red light, not a green light. And yet the advice of everybody around me is saying, Dave, it's a green light. You've got to go for it, man. It's an opportunity too good to be missed. And peace, the referee, the umpire, the judge, the only thing that's really stable in your life becomes arch enemy number one. And we silence his voice sometimes. I've done it. And you make the mistake. But God is gracious. And we learn from that. To the point where peace becomes the ruler. And from, you know, from getting burnt once, twice, a thousand times, slowly you begin to understand that you need desperately to listen to this wonderful Expression of God's peace in your heart. Let the peace of God rule. Let it rule. Let it be the umpire in your life. You know, there's an amazing story about John Wesley. He was an amazing preacher throughout England and throughout America. And before he received Jesus as his savior, he was coming back from America on one occasion on a ship. And the ship was caught in a terrible storm. And everybody on the ship thought they were going down, including Wesley. They were fearing for their lives in terrible panic because the storm was so intense. It was like a hurricane. Wesley looks over and he, his eye captures and sees a number of Moravian Christians. And they are completely at peace. Everybody's running frantically. Everybody's terrified. Everybody's thinking the ship's going down. And these, in Wesley's words, these people, these Christians, were as happy in the storm and in the hurricane as they were in the sunshine. What was Wesley seeing? And this experience would ultimately lead him to the Prince of Peace. This experience would ultimately lead him from a place and a position of being outside of Christ and bring him right into the center of Christ and enabled him ultimately to be the man that he was. He was seeing men and women controlled by the peace of God. He was seeing men and women not interpreting, interpreting the outer circumstances around them and making a conclusion. No, he was seeing men and women that were completely founded in God's peace, allowing that peace to express itself through them and allowing that peace to direct them and not the circumstances about them. And they were in complete calm. Complete calm. As a result of that, Wesley, the great preacher, an expositor and hymn writer became a follower of Jesus Christ. It's amazing, you see, what this peace can do. It transforms you. There are oh so many instances of the Bible, in the Bible, of men and women who are completely anchored and strengthened by this umpire, this referee, this presence of God's peace. It wants to control. It wants to rule. Now the question is this. If we're not ruled by peace, 
If we're not ruled and transformed and changed by this referee, this umpire, the very peace of God, what are we ruled by? What are we ruled by? What are we controlled by? Because if it ain't peace, it'll be fear. It'll be depression. It'll be the instability of emotion. The highs and the lows and we'll be seeking to just have a moment of happiness in this or that. But it will be broken and fragmented and completely inconsistent with the desire that you really desire. Peace is what must be the umpire. Peace is what must take control. Can you pass me that little? This is one of the, let me show you one of my favorite toys by you. Oh, I do love this. Look at that. See that, look? It's fantastic. Now you know what pastors do on a Monday morning. <laughs> eh? Look at this, look. Lovely. It's a, if you didn't know, it's not a mobile phone. Okay? It's a remote control car. A remote control car. Now, I can, I can control that car. It can go left, right, backwards, forwards, round in circles. If I want it to, it can come to a complete standstill. Why? Because I'm holding the controls. I'm, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. Wherever that car wants to, I can drive it right off the end if I want. Right off the end of this stage. Because I'm in control tone. It's really, I tell you what, this is deep stuff this morning. This is so deep, man. Right? I'm in control. Left, right, up, down, round in circles. My hands on the controls, friends. I can control this to a good end. Or I can control this to a bad end. The question is, whose hands on the control? Peace? Oh yeah, Dave. <laughs> Sorry, James. <laughs> I tell you, wisdom. Wisdom. I know my hands on the control, James, right? But for the sake of us all this morning, you see, it's a simple illustration, isn't it? I've had fear holding this control. I've had, I've had depression holding this. I've had all kinds of thoughts and imaginations. Let's, let's, let's send Edwards this way. <laughs> Let, I tell you, watch this now. We'll send him this way. Oh, God. Oh, poor me. Oh, God. Oh, it's bad. It's, it's, worse. it's worse than it's ever been. That's it. That's it. Put him. That's it. Back him up. I tell you what we'll do today. Round in circles. Oh. It's funny. It's so funny, right? That it's true. Now, what, what the Lord says to us is, pass me the controls. Pass me. Let peace, you see. And whenever that, whenever you're going to take a step into something new, or whenever you feel an impulse to do something, and peace rises up and says, no, don't do that. Come my way. Learn to respond to it. Because when you step outside of it, you know it. And I do too. And I do too. Now, last week, uh, not last week, the week before, sorry, we looked a little at Jacob. And, uh, you know, when you, when you study the life of Jacob, you see that there was no rest inside him. There was no peace inside him. His, his very name means deceiver, supplanter, liar. Everything about him was encapsulated in the name that he was given by his dad, Isaac. He was, he was at war with everybody. He ripped people off left, right, and center, and he got away with it. He was brilliant at it. 
He was. He ripped his brother off of his birthright and his blessing. He lied to his own father. Imagine that. Deceived his own father that loved him. Looked after him and provided for him. That was the, the, the vein of his nature that ran through him and he couldn't do anything about it. And after he ripped his brother off Esau, he had to run for his life because Esau said, I'm going to kill you. You rip me off once too often, boy, I'm coming after you, I'm going to kill you. And he runs to his uncle Laban's house and he thinks as a result of separating himself from Esau and his father's house, he thinks that he's left his past behind him, but he didn't realize that, you know, he had to take himself wherever he went. And it, you know, you, you, you begin to read about his, his times with his uncle and, and again, they begin to rip each other off. Jacob rips him off. Laban rips him off. And there's this whole year after year confusion and conflict and pain. Because that's what happens when peace isn't the empire. That's what happens when your hand is on the controls and God's hand isn't. And then suddenly, he gets kicked out of Laban's house, and he does one big final rip-off. I mean, he rips his uncle off really good. So he's got the upper hand. He's acquired so many things, external things. And he's lived according to who he is. And yet we find him in Genesis chapter 32. At a critical place, a very dark place, the lowest place of his life. Why is he so low? Why is everything so dark when he's got everything that he's ever wanted? That his own nature has strained and strived for. The expression of his self-strength. But at Genesis chapter 32, the Bible says, we read it last time. It says he separated himself from everything. He separated himself from his wives. That whole situation was a situation of utter deceit. He separated himself from, from his herds. Where he'd coerced Laban and his herdsmen. A situation of utter deceit. And now he realizes at the most critical juncture in his life, he hasn't got what it takes within himself to do anything that he can do regarding his past and regarding his future. He looks back into his past, he sees devastation. He looks, back in, he looks forward into his future and he sees Esau coming towards him with 400 armed men and he's cornered. Best place to be. Best place to be. He's at the end of himself. He doesn't know what to do. And his deceit, his cheating, his lying is not going to get him out of the corner that circumstances put him into that God has created. And he, he's alone. He's alone. And the Bible says that he wrestles with a man all night. What was the wrestle about? This little thing here. It was all about this. Who's going to hold this? I, I am. I know James. <laughs> He's fantastic. <coughs> Who's going to hold it? I'm not saying that again, James. Who's going to be in control? <laughs> You're fantastic. Come on, give James a clap. He's brilliant. He's brilliant, James is. But that was the wrestle. That's what it was about. And suddenly, God or the angel did something wonderful. We looked at it. He just touched. He didn't strike. He didn't smack. He didn't use his power. It doesn't say, and God exerted himself with all of his power through the angel and smashed Jacob's hip. Just a touch will do it. Just a touch. He touched the hollow of his hip. And suddenly, 
was out of joint. The symbol of all of his strength was wrapped up in the strongest place of his life and a touch from God took away. I said 50 years. I said that Jacob was about 50 years old when he wrestled with God. Other commentators say he, he, he was probably even 70 years. 70 years, just a touch. I've lived with this so long. I can't uproot the thing. Just a touch. You just need a touch. That's all you need. I've battled with his anger. Before I know it, I tried to hold my words out. I hold my words in and bam, they just explode out. And everybody gets it. It's so strong. My addiction, my, we've all got them. We've all got them. Don't matter who you are, whether you stand up here and use a microphone and preach from the pipe, we've all got them, friends. Things that we, oh God, get this out of me. Attach. Attach. And he wrestles and he fights and attach. Takes him from, you see, God wasn't showing him how strong he could be. God was just showing Jacob his weakness. And when he touched him, all of his strength was reduced to weakness. And then the angel, we looked at it, didn't we? The angel says to Jacob, the day is breaking. You see, God will take you from the night into the day. He says, the day is breaking. Let me go. Why did God say that? Or the angel, why did the angel say that? Not because he couldn't have relieved himself and separated himself from, from Jacob. This angel's all powerful. God, the angel said that to Jacob simply because he wanted to arouse a question within Jacob. He wanted to awaken a new passion within him, which he did because Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's what God wanted to hear. That's what he was waiting for. The moment where he could say, I'm going to change your name then. God was waiting for this for 70 years. This moment was a wonderful moment. The pinnacle of his life was disguised in the darkest moment, a crisis moment, but it was the most glorious moment because God had ordained it to be on that night when he was all alone, when he'd separated himself, this was the moment where change was going to come as a result of the crisis that Jacob had brought upon himself. Let me go. I will not let you go. Jacob's not wrestling with the angel now because his strength had been taken away. He's not wrestling with him. He's not saying, I will not let you go. And got the angel in a, in a headlock. No, there's no wrestling here now. Because his hip, the strongest part of his life has been touched. It's been dealt with. What's happening? He's no longer wrestling. He's clinging. He's constraining God. He's holding on in weakness. Saying, please bless me. Please don't go anywhere. I just don't want to be left in my weakness. I want transformation. And God says, you'll no longer now. Or actually, God says, what's your name? What's your name? And he says, Jacob. In that moment, Jacob announces everything he'd been in his history. And when he recognized who he'd been in his history, God announces who he's going to be in his future. And it's not going to be a repeat of the 70 years of deceit and manipulation and coercion and lies and upper handedness on people. Now he's going to be 
a prince. He said, your name from this moment shall be called Israel. It means prince with God. Let me tell you something about the character of a prince with God. He doesn't lie. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't deceive. He doesn't manipulate or coerce. He reigns in life from a place of utter rest. And peace becomes the controlling factor of his life. It doesn't mean to say that he didn't go through things. In his future, he did. But in every adverse situation, even when he lost his dear son Joseph and thought that he was murdered, ultimately, in every adverse situation, he trusted God, and ultimately, the adversity became the greatest form of blessing. It really did. I'm going to ask the musicians... To come, we're going to close in a moment. God has many different ways in meeting us. Many different ways. Sometimes the most effective ways are the strangest ways. The darkest route. Sometimes God meets us in a way that that we struggle to understand. And we can't see his hand moving and crafting and shaping Sometimes we've been driven to our knees in tears as we've seen our loved ones suffer with sickness. And we can't understand why God's allowed it. We can't understand why God doesn't come immediately and speedily with an answer of deliverance. We can't understand, that's right, in his time. We can't understand the workings of God. His ways are higher. And he will not be put in any preacher's box, friends. I'm telling you. You can box him up and package him out and say, this is God. I'll tell you now, he'll defy everything. The Bible says he's beyond knowing. And beyond definition or description. God meets us in crisis. One night, Jesus was walking on water, as you do. And he saw his disciples. It wasn't just any water, it was stormy water. He saw his disciples straining, using their strength. To fight against the storm. What was happening? Well, the scenario was very similar to that that Jacob found himself in many, many years before in Genesis chapter 32. Fighting, straining, wrestling, using all of their strength to just get by, to just get through. And the Bible says, Mark chapter 6. Says this, and he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came unto them walking upon the sea. Now, this next part is really important. Don't miss it. And he would have passed them by. Imagine that. What a strange line to find in that awful, terrific event that the disciples were in on that night in the boat in the storm. Straining, toiling. I mean, you just want to run right in there, wouldn't you? You just want to run right in there and just take control. He would have passed them by. And then we find that they thought he was a ghost and they cried out. They cried out to the one that would have passed by. And suddenly you read on and he steps into the boat and he takes complete control of the storm. Why? Because no longer were they trying to use their strength. No longer were they trying to bring 
the boat through the storm by their own means. They cried out. And the one who would have walked on, the one that would have left them to their own devices and their own strength, suddenly hears a cry from the heart. And he says, I'll have this, please. I'll have this. This boat is not going to be thrown around in this storm. I'm going to calm the wind right now. I'm going to speak to the waves. Peace. Be still. And the rage of the waves became like a mill pond. Became like a, a calm mirror image of beauty and peace. Who's in control? Is the storm? You see, behind any, behind any miracle, you just got to look a bit deeper. Behind any situation within the Bible, there's always a teaching. There's always a revelation. There's always something for us to learn. It's not just the testimony that Jesus has got power over wind and wave. There's deeper meaning for your life. You've got to dig in there and get it out and, and, and use it as fuel to strengthen your faith. Peace be still, he says. But he would have walked by. There's another moment that we see this happening again in scripture in the new testament again a terrific moment jesus they'd seen die on a cross he was buried and it seemed as if the enemy and all of the all of the city of jerusalem was in uproar they'd had the upper hand of the one who said i am the christ the son of the living god and he died and you find two men in Luke chapter 24, leaving Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus said, I will rise again from the dead. And he'd done that. But they were low, broken. And they were having a conversation with themselves about the Christ who they'd placed their hopes in. The one that had given them great and exceeding precious promises. The one that said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lo, I will be with you always. The one who had promised so much. They had seen die and crucified. And now they're leaving Jerusalem, the place where Jesus had told them to remain. And they're going to a place called Emmaus. Their hearts were low and they were talking to each other about how their hopes had been completely crushed and dashed by seeing and witnessing what they'd seen. And while they were talking, a stranger came and began to walk with them. Hiya, boys. How's it going? What's been happening? What's been happening? Don't you know? I mean, haven't you heard the news? It's all in there. Haven't you heard the news? What's been happening in Jerusalem? The one that we thought would be the Messiah, the one that we hang all of our hopes on. He's left us, he's gone, he's been crucified. All right, all right, okay then. And in disguise, he meets them alone. They're wrestling, tussling, toiling with all of these things conflicting and confusing things and circumstances and the stranger the prince of peace just walks with them and in the course of their journey let me read to you what happened and as they drew near unto the village where they went he made Jesus as though he would have gone further so they were stopping and they, were, they, they had finally come to their destination where they, were, where they were going to put their head down for the night. And Jesus makes as if he's going to go further. He's going to go on. But it says this, but they constrained him saying, abide, abide with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is spent. 
and he went in and tarried with them. What was Jacob doing when he said, I will not let you go? He was saying, abide, abide with me, abide with me. He didn't just abide with him, he blessed him. What was the disciples saying when they cried in that vicious storm as Jesus passed by and was going to walk on? In that cry, they were saying, please abide, please abide. And what do you find him doing? He gets into the boat. He goes into the house. He breaks bread. Suddenly their eyes are opened. They see the resurrected Christ and he's gone. And it's enough to send them back in their direction to Jerusalem and their hearts rejoice as they live in a new day, not of dejection and disappointment, but reigning now in the life of Christ. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning to us. Holy Spirit, like you took those few loaves and few fish and you broke it and you blessed it and you gave it and you distributed it and it fed so many and their hunger was relieved Lord I pray that as your word has been distributed and spoken just a few loaves really and a few fish but Lord when you take it you plant it into our hearts new life begins Not the words of a man. They fail. But the words of the Spirit spoken by you in our hearts become seed that produces a great harvest. And Lord, I pray as we've tilled the soil of our hearts, maybe trouble has tilled that soil. Maybe circumstances and crises has tilled the soil like a plow going through us. We thank you that it's opened us up to receive your word so that a harvest can come forth. Lord, I pray for every single person under the sound of my voice this morning. Lord, I pray that we would place the control of our lives to the umpire of your peace. We would place the control of our lives in the hands, not of fear, not of anything that's outside of you, but everything that's within you. We ask it for your name, in Jesus' name.